thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith. Coming up, a leading authority on serial killers examines Lucy Letby's motives and how we prevent a repeat. Also, the DJ Chris Evans reveals he has melanoma, but what exactly is that? And we'll be hearing from the innovative British company who are putting sales on oil tankers. First this week. Lucy Letby on each of the seven offences of murder and the seven offences of attempted murder, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. Because the seriousness of your offences is exceptionally high, I direct that the early release provisions do not apply. The order of the court, therefore, is a whole life order on each and every offence, and you will spend the rest of your life in prison. Judge Mr Justice James Goss, sentencing British nurse Lucy Letby, who was found guilty of killing and attempting to kill multiple newborns in Northern England. Now, much of the commentary on the case has dwelled on why Lucy Letby did what she did. But David Wilson, Professor Emeritus of Criminology at Birmingham City University and a leading authority on serial killers, argues that getting inside the minds of serial killers, as you see in the movies and in books and so on, is unhelpful. Instead, he says, in trying to reduce the risk of a repeat, we should instead focus on who the victims tend to be and the environments in which these serial killers tend to operate. Most of my research has been trying to explain that serial killers reveal vulnerabilities in society which allow them to continue to kill for the length of time that they do. And Letby was an outlier in terms of the research I've conducted about um, nurses who'd kill in a hospital setting, most of whom, uh, according to my research, will be caught within three months. She was able to avoid detection for 12 months. And the vulnerabilities, surely, that Letby reveals is that she didn't have horns on her head. She was seen as nice Lucy Letby. And that therefore meant that alarm bells didn't ring quickly enough or for long enough to stop her from killing. You said in a piece you wrote for one of the broadsheets earlier in the week that, like most of the serial killers I've worked with and studied, Letby's been silent about what might have driven her to kill. But what detectives have produced, which is quite intriguing, on searching her house were pages and pages of notes all about what her motivations were, etc. Is that unusual? It's unusual, and nor do I find it particularly significant. I've read most of those notes, and... I didn't find them particularly compelling in revealing what might have been a trigger for her wanting to kill. 
It seemed to me that every serial killer I've worked with or studied either is very silent and uncommunicative about their motivation, or indeed one particular serial killer I worked a great deal with would talk endlessly about his motivation, but not necessarily with any great insight or indeed offering any help in thinking through what one should do to stop similar serial killers. So I find the whole motivation question for me is one that is uh, obviously intriguing to many people, but ultimately isn't going to allow us to really think through what we should be considering about stopping other nurses in a hospital setting from killing uh, vulnerable patients are the media and to a certain extent also uh, sort of books and novels and films and TV and so on, are they being a bit misleading then? Because they're almost using getting inside the mind of a serial killer and all that kind of thing as a plot device in order to, to move the narrative on or or to create that sort of tension that makes it watchable. And in fact, that is not, you're saying, how these guys tend to operate. That's absolutely correct as far as... I'm concerned. And indeed, I've spent an entire career, I think, having a, an academic and an interpersonal debate with FBI profilers who are constantly trying to get into the mind of a serial killer. And I keep arguing, well, I've spoken with many, many serial killers, and either they're quiet or they talk endlessly but don't tell me anything. And so it's far more important, it seems to me, looking at the groups who are vulnerable to attack. What do we do then about making the situation safer without at the same time the burden of over-regulation? A number of doctors have been interviewed on this subject and they've said, look, in the wake of what happened to Harold Shipman, there was a very strong reaction to regulate the medical profession more. Many people say none of what doctors are now going through in terms of annual validations and so on would catch Harold Shipman if he was still operating today. I think that's a fair point. I also think that it's important to bear in mind the the research that I conducted with a colleague about nurses who are going to kill in a healthcare setting from the 1970s through to the mid-20-teens. Worldwide, we found a total of 16 such nurses. Now, uh, that tells you this is a very, very rare phenomenon, and therefore the chances of it happening again are also incredibly rare. It does seem to me that she continued to kill for longer than those nurses that would be part of the sample that I uncovered, who were by and large caught within three months. And that does take us back into why red flags didn't uh, fly and fly for longer in her case. And that has to do with the fact that she was very well integrated into our team. She didn't make them feel uneasy. She had appropriate qualifications. She didn't seemingly um, spend too uh, inappropriate amounts of time talking to the families of the babies who had uh, died, killed by her. But at least two of the consultant pediatricians alerted the um, hospital managers to their concerns about what was happening on the unit, the neonatal unit, and no action was taken or action wasn't taken until it was um, too late. Now, th there has to be a lesson that's learned from that, that hospital managers should have taken seriously what a number of paediatricians were saying about the spikes in death, which were significantly higher than the in the previous year 
before LEPI started to work on the neonatal unit. But what you've just said is almost the same as when a person goes through various uh, disclosure and barring checks, for example, to see if they have some kind of criminal past that they've swept under the carpet or kept in the closet. A lot of these tests and things assume that someone comes with a pre-made track record that you can find that that discloses them as as a problem. Many of these people come with a clean bill of criminal health and they're going to look like shining examples of, of practitioners. Well, that's really interesting that you say that because that's actually not what um, my research uncovered at all. Uh, the, of the 16 nurses who killed in a hospital setting, virtually all of them had some kind of problematic history in previous unit. And often they were moving on precisely because they were making people in that unit or that hospital feel uneasy. And one of the main messages of the research was that hospital administrators had to take up their references, the references of people, nurses who were moving from one hospital or one unit to another, and who were moving regularly because they were making people uneasy. But there was such pressure in the healthcare systems that the temptation was not to take up their references because those administrators were just simply so grateful that they had got a pair of hands to fill the vacancy. And so some of the basic things still need to be done, it seems to me. And um, and therefore, rather than thinking up clever uh, and ever more bureaucratic processes, maybe what we've just got to do is do the basic things correctly. David Wilson. And David is doing a speaking tour in October, which will cover some aspects of the things we talked about there. His website, professordavidwilson.co.uk, has got more details if you'd like to follow up. The British broadcaster and DJ Chris Evans has revealed that he's been diagnosed with a skin cancer called melanoma. The 57-year-old said he was tested for the disease after his masseurs noticed a mark on his shin. This is what he told his Virgin Radio programme audience recently. I went for this biopsy before I went away because this genius lady called Dee, who gives me the best massage ever every Friday, says, go and get that looked at. When she got it looked at, and the specialist said, I don't think it is anything, but we'll take a biopsy just in case. And then whilst I was away, they sent me the email that says we need to discuss, um, give us a call. Yeah. We need to discuss what's going on with this um, this issue. And it is it is a melanoma. But but it's been caught so early, just so you know, that, uh, that it, sh- it, it should be completely uh, treatable. Chris Evans. So what exactly is a melanoma? Well, to tell us, Julia Newton-Bishop is a professor of dermatology at the University of Leeds. A melanoma is a cancer of the cells in our skin that produce our skin colour. Most melanomas occur on sun-exposed skin. And who tends to get them? It occurs when genetic damage happens within the cell by exposure, essentially to the sun. Within the sun's rays, there are shorter wavelengths called UVB. And these are important to us because they allow us to make vitamin D, but they also damage skin. And people who are vulnerable to melanoma have, on the whole, pale skin, and they have the sort of skin that easily burns. So the people who are most at risk are those with the palest skin. Often 
with red hair and it's all about burning because it's during that process of sunburn that this genetic damage occurs which later causes melanoma. What about other sources of ultraviolet, people who go to tanning salons for example? It is well described now that excessive exposure to UVA in sunbeds are at increased risk of melanoma. But I wouldn't want to give the impression that everyone's safe so long as they don't use a sunbed because most melanoma occurs in people who get burnt in the garden on a lovely day like this uh, when they're outside, probably especially if they're sunbathing. Chris Evans is in his mid-50s. Is that the peak age or is he late to the party for melanoma? 50 used to be about the average age for melanoma. It's a bit higher now, but it's not rare to see very young people in their 20s and 30s. And what should a person look out for? Half of melanomas occur in moles as a changing mole. So I'm looking at my arms now. Um, Moles are are usually quite circular. They grow to a a certain diameter and then they stop growing. Well-behaved moles. In a melanoma, you get a mole that's growing erratically and tends to be irregular in shape and irregular in colour. So a changing mole, getting checked early, because the important thing is if you have a melanoma on your skin and it is removed very early, then they don't come back. You've got it cured. So if a person has something that they think might fulfil some of those criteria, how should it be investigated and what would be the, the likely outcome for the patient? Clinical diagnosis gives you a very strong clue and dermatologists are usually about 70 or 80% right. The norm is to then remove it surgically, to cut the whole thing out um, with a narrow margin of normal skin at the edge, done the local anaesthetic. And then that bit of skin goes off to the laboratory and the pathologist looks at that tissue under a microscope and looks for characteristic changes that tell us that this is a melanoma. Sometimes that's absolutely all that needs to be done. And for those in whom you need, we feel we need to take a little bit more just to be be sure, then the the patient would would go back and have more skin uh, removed from the edge just to be sure that we've removed all those cells. For many patients or a proportion of patients, uh, in whom uh, the melanoma is a bit thicker, then uh, they might consider having uh, an optional operation on top of that called the sentinel node biopsy, which is a way of looking for cancer cells that have escaped the skin and are in the uh, lymphatic drainage system. But essentially, the overwhelming majority of patients, 80%, are cured by that first surgery and nothing more needs to be done. So be vigilant, don't do what Chris Evans did the first time, which was not to go and see someone about it. It took the messers prodding him twice to encourage him to go and get checked out, and I'm sure he's very glad he did. That was Julia Newton-Bishop there. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. 
Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, where hundreds of water voles are returning to the Lake District. Now, much of the world's heaviest cargo goes by sea, and the ships that move it burn what is regarded as one of the nastiest fuels that we have, heavy fuel oil. This is effectively the tar that's left over after the distillation of crude. It's so thick that the engines have to heat it up to keep it runny enough so they can use it. It's also full of sulphur, and a big boat will burn off 100 tonnes of the stuff every day. Well, now a vessel that used to run exclusively on that fuel has been retrofitted with a pair of giant vertical wings that use the power of wind to knock a significant chunk off the fuel costs. John Cooper is the CEO of BAR Technologies, which designed the sails, and I asked him to describe how these wind wings, as they dub them, work. I'm going to put you in an aircraft on the way to your holidays, and I'm going to ask you to look out the window at the wing. Uh, when you're taking off, because that's the moment that the aircraft has the most vertical thrust. And what will be happening is you'll see the wing, but you'll see an element coming out the front of the wing and normally an element coming out the back of the wing. And then the wing is actually becoming more of a crescent shape. And then what we've done is we've taken that arrangement and made it vertical and put it on ships. And that means that that thrust is now horizontal, pushing the boat forward. Seen from a distance, this is basically an oil tanker with a couple of big aeroplane wings sticking out of it. How much thrust will this actually generate for the boat? So it will produce enough thrust for each wing to save one and a half tonnes of heavy fuel oil per day. So this is significant. So that first one that you see has two wings. So therefore, it's three tonnes of heavy fuel oil per day. And even in, more importantly, for you know our next generations, the carbon footprint is reduced by nine tonnes of CO2 per day. So a UK person going about their normal business emits nine tonnes a year. And we're trying to save that every day on this vessel. And these wings, are they literally aircraft wing sized, each one of them that you've put on the boat? Well, arguably bigger. The wings that you see on this boat are 37 and a half metres tall in their flying shape and 20 metres wide. These are big wings. When a person sails, say, a yacht, they adjust the position or angle of the sails in order to get the best amount of force forward for the boat relevant to the wind direction. So are your sails adjustable in the same way? Exactly. So actually, those three elements that I was describing are all mounted such that the centre element can rotate, in fact, 360 degrees to provide either a fail safe position. So there's no lift. uh, And that means they're all in in a line pointing towards the wind or in a really strong thrusting flying shape where they're actually presented in the same way that an aircraft wing is on takeoff and in that nice crescent. So we can, it's part of our patented technology, actually, that we can present that wing in all different angles and create the required thrust from the prevailing wind. Are these all retrofittable? So could we take some of those enormous great grain carriers you're seeing leaving Ukraine at the moment or trying to, uh, some of the big oil tankers that are steaming around the world, can this be retrofitted to ships like that? Absolutely. And indeed, the first vessel, 
sailed in as a motoring vessel called the Pixis Ocean and three weeks later sailed out as a hybrid vessel with two of our wind wings on board and the same with the second vessel. So these legacy vessels we must concentrate on, we must retrofit wings to as many as possible. Uh, of course we're interested in new build designs as well and we're working with many of the vessel designers around the world such that they incorporate our wind wings in their new build designs but actually the problem's much bigger than that uh, and the legacy fleet is really important to us too. And are they made of materials that are readily sourceable and and have better carbon credentials than the fuel that they're saving? Because obviously it's it's laudable that you're saving that amount of, of carbon costs from burning fuel every day. But if arguably there's a huge, great carbon cost to making these things, then it's a vanishing return. So what are they made of and, and how sustainable is that? Yeah, so we've concentrated very hard on this aspect. We've purposely stayed away from carbon fibre. We've concentrated on materials that are already used in the industry, readily available in the locations that we're going to be making them. So for the, our central mast is made of D32 and D36 steel, which is shipbuilding steel. And the elements clad around that mast are made of glass composite, which is the exact same materials that the world is making wind farm blades from. So the technologies are known, the materials are known, we stayed away from materials that would be new and have a bigger footprint than those already used. And of course, when we're talking about one and a half tons of CO2, sorry, one and a half tons of fuel, well, that's 4.65 tons of CO2 per wing per day, uh, the cost in terms of the environment of making the wings is totally minuscule in comparison to the savings made even over the first week. And how big is the potential market? If this takes off and you've got shipping magnates all over the world who are now coming to you saying, can we implement this design? Can we fit this? How big is that market? Yeah, well, the good news is we have got shipping magnates all over the world coming to ask us to to order wings. So they're all just waiting for the results of this first voyage, which I can absolutely tell your listeners are very good indeed. Uh, so there's an exclusive for you, Chris. But, uh, you know, I think that we'll be making 200 wings next year, 400 wings the year after, and we'll be going from there. So my biggest headache is finding places and supply chains to make lots of wings. Good problem to have. It is indeed. John Cooper there, isn't that an amazing thing to go back in time, bring wings and sails from yesteryear and, and apply them to today? Why did no one think of that any sooner? Well, let's head to the Lake District now, and hundreds of water voles have been released at a secret location which is close to Horsewater. The move's part of an attempt to create a thriving population of the endangered species in Cumbria. With us now is Lee Schofield, who's the site manager for the RSPB at Horsewater. Why are you doing this and doing it there, Lee? Water voles were previously a really abundant and very widespread species. Um, and sadly, due to predation by invasive um, American mink and also habitat loss, they've declined by something like 90%. Um, we've been working really hard around Hawes Water to restore the habitats, uh, to, to restore a whole kind of mosaic of habitats, actually, um, and also to control uh, those mink in order to bring the water voles back again. And we know that they were there quite recently. There were sort of old burrows there, suggesting that they were probably around in the area, you know, a few decades ago, 40, 50 years ago. 
And they're a really important species in their own right, of course, um, but they're also like a really vital part of the whole um, ecosystem. They're, they're a big prey item, so they feed lots and lots of other species. So really important to bring them back for their own sake, but, but also for the health of the whole ecosystem. Where do you get them from in the first place? When you want to do a reintroduction programme like that, do you breed them up artificially, as it were, and then transport them? Or do you go to an area where they're in relative abundance and trap some and bring them? What's involved in in moving and then re-establishing a species like this? So these ones came from a specialist conservation breeder, a chap called Derek Gow, um, and he has built up um, locally specific captive bred populations so because we're in the north of England um, these are a sort of northern clade so they were taken from a site that that, as you say had sufficiently healthy population that some could be taken um, and they've been bred up to build up their numbers and their numbers can be built up very quickly that like all rodents they they reproduce very rapidly so each female water bowl can have between two and five litters a year and each of those litters can have between two and eight young per litter so, um, you know, when the conditions are right, their populations can build up very, very rapidly. So so Derek Gow provided this, this, uh, th- these animals with us and we released um, 204 of them um, into uh, the site that we're looking after up at Horsewater. Um, and then a further 161 were released just down the valley on land belonging to the Lowther estate. And what is the marker of success? How will you know if and how are you going to monitor them, I guess, uh, that, that they're actually establishing and doing well? Um, so we can survey for them. They leave quite distinctive signs. They're quite um, secretive creatures um, and the habitat that they live in, you know, good quality habitat for water voles is very complex and, you know, lots of places for the animals to to, to hide away in. But they do leave very um, conspicuous droppings. They have um, droppings which are described as being about tic-tac sized and shape. Um, so they're, they're relatively easy to find. And they also leave uh, tracks and sort of slides and tunnels, quite distinctive burrows that have one opening on the on the surface and one near the water's edge um, so we'll be able to, to to confirm that they're still present and what we want is for their population to expand so the two populations um, the the one down at Lowther and the one near Horsewater um, they're on the same catchment so over the course of the next few years we're going to be working with Eden Rivers Trust and a range of other partners to um, basically try and fill in that gap um, so we hope that they will expand naturally as we continue to to control the the, the predatory mink, um, but also we can supplement them with additional releases to get a, a, a sort of a connected landscape scale population re-established again. Lee Schofield, and now it's time for Question of the Week and what promises to be an infectious listen. Here's James Titko. Thanks, Chris. And as you allude to, this question has a chance of going viral. So stay with me. It might be right up your street. Carla asks, why did COVID-19 affect humans but not animals? Well, I know just the man to help with that. What do you reckon, Chris? Take it away. So, can cats and dogs and other animals catch COVID? Or, more accurately, can they catch SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 disease in humans? The answer is absolutely yes. The COVID-19 coronavirus is actually not naturally an infection of humans at all. It's what's known as a zoonosis, an infection that's spread to us from animals. And while the jury's still out on whether the virus escaped from a Chinese laboratory along the way, it nevertheless almost certainly began as an infection in a bat. And we know this because the genetic codes of the coronaviruses that are carried naturally by bats are remarkably similar, some of them, to the genetic code of the COVID-19 SARS-CoV-2 virus. 
Around the world, billions of people have since gone on to catch COVID-19, and many of them have exposed their pets and their farm animals in the process. There are reports of household cats and dogs, as well as mink, ferrets and polecats testing positive for the virus. And in the Chinese city of Wuhan, where the pandemic began, 15% of the feral cats tested in the aftermath of the outbreak were positive for antibodies to the virus, proving they'd been exposed, probably through scavenging through human waste. These animals are susceptible to the infection because they're mammals like we are, and they share similar biochemistry. That means they're a target. But they also seem to fare better than humans on average when they catch the disease. So why is that? Well, the reason is that viruses evolved become highly optimised to their natural hosts. The best outcome for any virus is to be minimally disruptive for the host while achieving maximum infectivity and therefore transmissibility. Disable your host too significantly or even kill them and they won't go about their business infecting others quite so readily. You'll also eventually run out of victims to infect. So in its bat host, the COVID-19 virus is relatively benign. But when it jumps the species barrier into us, the virus is ill-adapted to our physiology. The immune evasion that works really well in a bat turns out to be a massive case of overkill in some people. But in your dog or cat, on the other hand, the reverse is true. The virus struggles to gain much of a toehold, it can't grow very efficiently and the infection tends to smoulder rather like a damp bushfire rather than turn into an inferno before the immune system can smother it. It isn't just a one-way street though. Some infections that are trivial for humans are also lethal for wild animals. Two viruses that cause the common cold in us, called RSV and HMPV, can wipe out chimpanzees, killing up to one in five young animals for the same reason – adaptations that make these viruses better bedfellows for us can render them lethal for even our very close animal cousins. So this is why biologists, conservationists and healthcare and animal practitioners tend to talk about one health. Viruses can and do spread between species with highly unpredictable results and that's why we need to keep tabs on them. Thanks Chris and thanks Carla for sending that one in. Next week we're answering this one from Daniel. My question is, if you could travel in time, could you go back further than the Big Bang, the current thinking that defines the beginning of the universe as it is today? Thank you. If you've got a question you'd like us to have a go at, send it in to chris at nakedscientists.com and we'd be delighted to take a look at it for you. And that's all we have time for. On Tuesday, though, do hook up with us because we'll be looking up to the night sky to explore humankind's enduring fascination with the moon. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.